That's not, that's not evil? Being hostile to all mankind and subversive is not evil? One disco. Well, I have to say that because St. Paul said the Jews are enemies of the entire human race. They are. What do you think of Jordan Peterson? Uh, did you see the video about where he said, I can't do it? Adam, I'm trying to do you a favor. You're fighting for the gay disco. Don't make your ignorance normative for the rest of it. Don't use those kinds of slurs on the fighting for the gay disco. What are there are no slurs here? Die for the gay disco. This is an uprising against smug elites. Smug elites. So they're the villains. And the opposite is America. Because America is now one big gay disco. Definitely our most requested guest. Uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones, a man who needs no introduction. I mean, it is. That, that's what they That's what they pay the Rockefeller Foundation to do. Uh, you're not supposed to know what I just told you. One big gay disco. They didn't know about this. They didn't know what we know now. I mean, is there any argument you can use to wake them up? Yeah, I think that God had a plan for your life. Well, you'd be jerking off to every curvy piece of driftwood you saw at the beach. Fight the people who don't like disco. Maybe you would. And you're consistently refusing to talk about pornography. Uh, Pete Buttigieg yeah. seems to be the exhibit A of that process. Yes, yes. Because you think that the anus is a sex organ, don't you, Pete? One big gay disco. Uh, Richard Spencer hands out spears and he says, charge the machine gun nest. Dr. Jones. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, not all of the heads of the Federal Reserve were Jews, but after a certain period of time, uh, that seemed to be the case. Hello and welcome. South Bend, Indiana. Summer heat, 83 degrees out. Uh, Friday afternoon, glad to be here. We have a special show today. We've, this show has been years in the making. We're going to have special guests today, uh, Rachel Fulton Brown and my good friend Octavio Sequeiras. Uh, uh, and we're going to talk about The Dangers of Beauty, uh, the book that is my most recent book. It took Rachel at least two years to read the book. That's part of the reason why it took so long. Uh, but uh, we're going to talk about beauty and the importance of beauty. Uh, and this has come uh, apparent to me uh, recently. Uh, because I got back into talking about Nathaniel Hawthorne. My intellectual odyssey began pretty much 50, almost 50 years ago when I did my doctoral dissertation on Nathaniel Hawthorne. He's come back into my life in a way that is going to allow me to do a second edition. Uh, and he's also uh, uh, helped me understand the meaning of the beauty book, which uh, immediately preceded this. Hawthorne was a man... Um, uh, a, he was an acute observer of everything. His occupation, he spent his entire life taking long walks. 
usually observing people, getting on with their lives as a kind of disembodied observer. He took long walks uh, with his children when he had the children, got married, had a happy marriage. Uh, but he spent the most of his life uh, in New England villages. Henry James wrote a little book about him. He said uh, Hawthorne was provincial. He was provincial. You can't go up in these little villages, uh, if, spend 50 years of your life there and not come away with kind of constricted horizons. This became apparent to Hawthorne when he went to Rome uh, in his 50s after he had been appointed uh, consul in Liverpool by his good friend uh, uh, Franklin Pierce, uh, who was president of the United States. Hawthorne wrote the campaign biography. And so he comes to Rome and it's not like Concord, Massachusetts. It's different. And the main thing that's different about it is the art. And the main thing that's different about the art is the beauty. He's just overwhelmed by the beauty uh, that he sees everywhere in Rome. There's other aspects of Rome that are not particularly beautiful, but there is beauty there that you can't find any place else in the world. And at this point, he has, uh, he understands in an inchoate way that beauty is a transcendental. Beauty, the good, the true, and the uh, beautiful are all manifestations of God. And if you pursue either any one of those three or all three of them, you will be brought to the presence of God. You will brought, be brought into a transcendent moment. And this is precisely what happened to Hawthorne. He was immersed, he's standing there in uh, St. Peter's Basilica, an overwhelming aesthetic experience. I've been there myself. You're simply overwhelmed by the magnitude of this building, by the power, by the coherence, by the focus of this building where you stand, there's all of this stuff around you. And then it all leads to that one window where you have the, the dove, the Holy Spirit, incredible focus, incredible unity and diversity which is the definition of beauty. And he it brings him to this existential moment where how am I going to react to this beauty? In other words, how am I going to react to God's invitation to my life? And he sees the confessional. And this is the man who wrote the book about how Puritans can't go to confession. The Puritan minister, Dimsdale, is a saint because you have to be a saint to be a member of the church. He's a saint who committed adultery. What do you do then? That's the Hawthorne's genius exploring the psychology of Calvinist uh, rational psychology. Uh, and uh, he looks to see the, the confessional. He takes a step forward up and the priest steps out. I'm not going to tell you what happened then. You can read the book when it comes out. But uh, he didn't respond. He didn't respond. What I'm saying here is the gist of this book is that beauty, the artist can portray things that the philosopher cannot explain. And if there were ever a place where philosophers could not explain things, it's England. Uh, and England, as a result, was dependent on beauty uh, to give you. Uh, uh, and so that's what we're going to talk about uh, today in general. Uh, an example of what I'm talking about, about the the English have been crippled philosophically ever since William of Ockham. They never got over that. Uh, but they had this appreciation of beauty. 
And I think that kept England going over the centuries. And another example of what I'm talking about is Queen Elizabeth, a total failure uh, as head of the Church of England, uh, proof that uh, it's uh, whatever patrimony they had evaporated, a lady who couldn't even object to uh, homosexuality or abortion, uh, which both were legitimatized on her watch. But she did go to Italy and um, made the acquaintance of uh, Pietro Anagoni. Now, I don't know whether she went to Italy. I don't know how this uh, meeting came about. But Pietro Anagoni, the greatest portrait painter of the 20th century, did a portrait of Queen Elizabeth, which I think is one of the greatest portraits of the 20th century. And because of that, it saved his career. Uh, because at the very moment he wrote his manifesto about Italian art was the high watermark of abstract expressionism. Uh, and he would have been forever lost if it hadn't been for Queen Elizabeth. And once Queen Elizabeth had her portrait done, every single aristocrat in England wanted his or her portrait done by Anagoni. And that ensured his career. And we all know who he is because of that. Anyway, that's our story. We're going to go to our panelists now. We're going to go first to Rachel Fulton Brown, Professor Rachel Fulton Brown, Professor, Associate Professor of History at the University of Chicago, uh, a lady who has proven that the University of Chicago believes in academic freedom to some extent, uh, and also a lady deeply involved in uh, the prosecution of beauty uh, through her poetry group. So welcome, uh, Professor Brown. Thank you, Dr. Jones. <laughs> I'm happy. I'm very happy to be here. As I, so the reason it took me two years to write the read the book is I had to underline every word in it. It's <laughs> However, well, I do know. I do know. I've listened to enough of your interviews that I've read the book. Right. I, this is not going to be one of those where they they you you convince me to read the book. I've already read it. Good. Good. <laughs> That's why you're on. <laughs> That's why I'm here because I actually read the book. So, yeah. So where where do you want to uh, get? Where do you want to enter this discussion? Do you want to talk about England? What do you want to talk about? Well, I want to talk about poetry. OK, um, as you say, I've been I've been working. So COVID, you know, when COVID hit three years ago, it's sort of on everybody's mind. And, I, you know, people made varieties of choices about how to spend their lock their lockdown. And mine was I need to learn to write iambic pentameter. <laughs> um, and to, to say that is saying. Iambic pentameter is the meter in which all Engl great English poetry was written for centuries. It's the meter that Chaucer used. It's the meter that Shakespeare uses in his great soliloquies. And so if you, you know, you can sh recite Shakespeare, you're probably reciting an iambic pentameter. Milton uses it, um, Alexander Pope. And, and so I realized that- And Marlowe, is this the face that launched a thousand ships and burned the topless towers of Ilium? Right. So that we, I mean, it's like you're saying England doesn't have philosophy, but what it had was iambic pentameter. And that's, that's my thesis. The beauty saved England when philosophy went down the drain there. But but specifically, and this is your, your chapter in the book, that it's English poetry. It's a, the, the English, and I think I've heard you talk about this, that you know, other art forms England has to borrow. Elizabeth has to go to Italy to get a portrait painter. Um, you know, they have to go to Germany to get music and so forth. Right. But, but England has poetry. England has the, the 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 place that England excels in beauty is in its poetry, and therefore, you know, in iambic pentameter. And I said I needed to learn to write it because, of course, we're, we're fighting the culture wars. We we're often looking at the culture that has been previously made. 
well, culture needs to be alive. It needs to be something that we're actually participating in ourselves. And, you know, but sort of what's more, what's one, what's more basic for those of us who are English speaking to learn the craft of English poetry. Um, but two, that poetry is, it's like foundational as an art because it comes from our language. It comes from storytelling and breath and our, you know, it's like embodied um, expression of, of, of joy at being alive and being able to speak. So, you know, I, 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 I'm working with my poetry team and other forms too, and music and um, drawing and things like that. We've got other people to help with that, but we needed the core of the English expression of m measured speech. And I can go on at length about that, why? <laughs> but but the, I'd like to I'd like to I'd like to explore with you what you know. So why England has poetry and what we learned from, particularly in the nineteenth century, about the struggle that England has with where to place its morality when it has this aesthetics but not a metaphysics. Right, right. Yeah. That is that's uh, Barbara Tuckman said it was because the English studied the Bible, and uh, literacy was the high. I think literacy was uh, the highest rates of literacy were in England. Mm. Uh, maybe America was second, but that was kind of an English colony. So it was a, a sense close to the word. They were close to the word. I found that uh, the English were afraid of emotion. And I think that one manifestation of this is their music. Uh, they, they never had the, the emotional immediacy of, let's say, Russian music or German music. Rayfun Williams said that it was they were imitating Germans and they were never secure in their ability. Uh, and that was why they were, uh, uh, that's why the music was no good. But the, but the poetry, the poet, they, they excelled at poetry. And, and I think that the only access they ever had to philosophy was through, through poetry, uh, and specifically Coleridge. And Coleridge was I th a, a vastly underrated guy. Uh, uh, everybody knows he was a drug addict, but I mean, give him credit. He did some great stuff being a drug addict. So, uh, and he was the man who was a, who transmitted German philosophy to England and, and, uh, nobody really could, uh, carry the baton after he tried to pass it off. So, but the poetry remains. And so I think that it's a classic example of where beauty, beauty became the vehicle. And it's still be it's still beautiful. It's, uh, another example would be the uh, the coronation, <laughs> the upcoming coronation of uh, mm -hmm. King Charles, or any event in the royal family. It's a huge spectacle. Uh, I, I think the, the more that religion evaporates, the more elaborate the spectacle becomes, uh, because that's what they believe in. But then, well, I mean, you've you've talked about this that that you know what. So one of the things our dragon common room is doing is we're we're writing a dragon poem because you do, um, but it's modeled on Edmund Spencer's Fairy Queen as uh, in stanza form, and we chose the Fairy Queen specifically because we're trying to show the destruction of culture through a drug addiction. Interesting, you bring Coleridge up as a as an addict, um, but the, the the Fairy Queen was written as the Elizabethan, you know, metaphysical. Um, aesthetic fantasy for Elizabeth, right? After, of course, her father has destroyed the properties of the church and, and dragon-like, you know, captured them all, which then transforms England into what we, we were talking about as a pirate nation, right? The England, England steals from everywhere. 
and it's it's interesting therefore that it, you know it's, it's foundational myth is in this meter and it's a fantasy poem and we're trying to work with all of that because i think when, when people think about england they think about um both the I mean, they think about them as, as shopkeepers or something, but it's also all the fantasy literature. So I'd like to throw that in. You mean bring, bring up Coleridge yeah. and, and yeah. Xanadu, right? But it's also the, you know, the, the, the language in which you write Midsummer Night's Dream. So you have fairies. So you end up with Tolkien and J.K. Rowling and, and everything. The, the, the world reads English um, before that, that, that storytelling. Yeah. They, they, also, another thing that comes to me is when the wolf, uh, uh, he's trying to f uh, drive the French out of uh, Canada. It's the end of the year. They have one last chance to basically attack Quebec uh, before the winter sets in. And the night before, he recites a poem. <laughs> right. He recites Gray's elegy on a country uh, country uh, country churchyard, and, and and he says. This is what England is all about. This is what we believe most deeply. So it was a poem that actually epitomized England for him. And then, of course, he succeeded the next day with against impossible odds and did conquer uh, 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 France. So it shows you that type of inspiration. That it was poetic inspiration that, that drove drove the British Empire as well. Well, and I say, I'd say, what if you need any proof of the, the significant importance of poetry? It drives our American form, our American um, national policy too. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. It's like that. That the English, we, I mean, it goes back to the old English that um, Tolkien loved to study. That we seem to anchor our um, sense of reality in rhyming or or alliterative phrases and they stick with people and they become truth for us if you say where is our philosophy where is our metaphysics it's in to be or not to be that is the question i mean we can recite shakespeare people have a sense of nation as english because of you know the the saint crispin's day speech or something it's 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 neglect it's a neglected part of the way we define ourselves as english as americans as uh, you know nation as empire and so it's it's curious because whenever people are you know in the culture wars in, in our political sphere, arguing over nationalism, neglecting why it is the English have a, a, a shape of themselves in the first place. Yeah, I, I think I think you're, you're right about Shakespeare. Shakespeare was a crucial figure. And uh, the one thing about Shakespeare was that he couldn't be forthright and talk about the situation as it existed. He would have had his head chopped off. He, he was, I think he was a Catholic because most people were Catholic at that point, in spite of the religion that got imposed on him by the, by the looters. Uh, and because he was a Catholic, he had that depth. His roots went really deep. Right. And the roots, and the, the, roots uh, the, the stuff that came out of the ground, so, but it ended up in poetry. So for example, uh, my book on uh, economics is, the title is Barren Metal. That's from Shakespeare. But Shakespeare got it from the Catena Aurea, which is a prayer book uh, mm -hmm. uh, at that time. Uh, I, I, I go all the way back to the, the beginning of our understanding of money when Aristotle said money is sterile. And now here's the de debate between Shylock and Antonio about uh, uh, should I borrow money or not? Uh, other things like the, uh, the, the uh, speech, uh, Ulysses speech in Troilus and Cressida. Mm -hmm. Basically, a, a deep understanding of the derangement that was brought about by the Reformation. 
take uh, take degree away, untune that string and hark what discourse follows. Whatever patrimony they had from the West, it seems to me, came through poetry. It came through Shakespeare because he couldn't talk about the situation, honestly. If he talked about it, he would have been dead. So when you have Troilus and, not Troilus and Christ, Timon of Athens, for example, is a, it's set in Greece. Well, obviously, if you're putting it in Greece, it's obvious you're talking about Elizabethan England to throw off the censors. But that's right. all about usury, about what happened to that generation of looters when they borrowed money and they lost everything. This is, is crucial and it all come, comes through poetry. Anyway, at this point, I'd like to introduce another another guest of ours. We're going to bring in uh, Octavio Sequeiras from the other end of the world. Uh, Octavio and I met each other uh, years ago. Uh, actually, I think it was a Rockford Institute uh, uh, meeting uh, in Chicago. Octavio is from Argentina. He comes from a distinguished uh, family of Argentine intellectuals. His father, I believe, I, I think he was he the, one of the founders of the uh, magazine Gladio. If he wasn't, he certainly wrote reviews uh, in, in Gladio. Uh, I had the good fortune of meeting Otavio's uh, mother and sister when I was in Buenos Aires. Uh, his mother gave uh, a, a learned disquisition on uh, Logois Bermaticoi in Spanish, which I struggled to keep up with. Anyway, welcome. Uh, to the discussion, Octavio. Thank you, Dr. Jones. I'm glad to be here. Uh, yes. Well, now you're from the other end of the world. The only thing you have in common with uh, England is the battle over the Malvinas or the Falkland <laughs> Islands. Uh, so tell us, tell us your perspective. You also have have read the book. I read the book. It took me some some time as well as uh, Rachel. Uh, but not because I want to highlight, not because the book is difficult to read. Uh, it took some time because I was reading something else in parallel. And this is a book that you have to read slowly to appreciate it mm -hmm. and to digest it. And I want to highlight that it should be read. I, I recommend it for people. It shouldn't be afraid or intimidated by, by, by the book. You know, it's a high culture, but for three reasons. Number one is self-standing book. People say, should I read this with some something else from Mark Jones? Well, you can, I will touch it later, but this is a self-standing book in itself. So it's self-contained. Second, uh, the book is written for the common man. It's not written for, for intellectuals. I, I don't see myself as an intellectual. And it's written for everybody. And there are very high, difficult ideas and, and concepts that, uh, that you put down in, in plain English and for everybody to, to follow. And finally, because uh, you, you do it with, a, with your classic signature, that when you explain something, in this case, a painting or a composition or a, piece, a building, you also explain that with, in parallel with the life of the, of the subject, whether it's a composer or the painter or the architect, and usually there's, they go together, right? The life goes up and the, the work, the, the output of the artist goes up. And if it goes down, it, it also goes down. When you see that, you understand a lot of things that otherwise will, you will miss it. And that's why the book has so much uh, explanatory power from my side. So I really recommend for, for everybody. So, what I would like to, to bring on now is um, 
probably you have heard that uh, the saying that culture is downstream of politics. Culture could be a proxy for art, uh, but other people think that's the other way around. It's the other because, way, no, it's the other way around. Politics exactly. is the culture. Well, <laughs> some people, it's still it's a discussion. Is politics downstream of culture or is culture downstream of politics? I don't know really, maybe they're depending on the circumstances, but what I can say for sure after reading this book is that both of them are downstream of religion and philosophy. And I got to, to say this because I read this book and previously I read Logos Rising. So th there is a parallel here um, that I'm going to speculate about. I would like to, to, to hear Dr. Johnson and Rachel's point as well. But uh, the danger of beauty traces painting, uh, music and uh, poetry and architecture mostly, that those are the, the, the four fields. And you can see a rising, right? In, in a long time, things get better. People get better at painting, get better at building things. They reach a peak and then they go down. 20th century is, is well, the, the book explains why things go down. And if you read a lot of rising, you will see the same, but from the perspective of philosophy and history and and, uh, and metaphysics, but mostly religion. So in Logos Rising, you see that the peak is reached with the scholastics in medieval time. And then things start going down. First, gradually, with the nominalism, with, with reformation, and then much faster with the French Revolution, communism, and so on and so forth. But the, the difference at the peak, there is, a, there is a lag in the peaks. Religion peaks in the Middle Ages, and let's say, take music for me, it peaks with Wagner. I like Wagner, okay? Maybe for somebody else, it peaks with Bach or Beethoven. But wherever, wherever it is, the peak is way, way downstream from the religious peak, right? There is a lag. So religion definitely is upstream of culture and politics. Do, do you see this as well, do, uh, Dr. Jones? Do you, do you, did you have this in mind when writing the danger of, of, of beauty or just came naturally? Because I see a clear parallel with Logos Rising. It, yeah, there is. I mean, we're, I'm writing at the end of the American empire. And, and when you write at the end of something, first of all, let's look at the positive side. Uh, Hegel said that the Euler von Minerva fleeked asked by Einbrechende Dämmerung. The owl of Minerva flies first at the onset of twilight. What he's talking about is the twilight of the empire. And so the empire is created on certain myths that control everyone's thinking. But when the empire breaks up, the new thoughts ca can emerge. Uh, and so these are the new thoughts that are uh, emerging now uh, in, from my perspective, which is at the end of the empire. Now, when you're talking about the rise and fall of empires, you're talking about uh, Vico, uh, who talked about this uh, extensively. And one of the things that I could never figure out with uh, Vico was the uh, Recorso. In other words, is this some type of, is this decline, is it necessary? Is it something that's unavoidable, like old age? 
or is there a moral component that would allow it to be reversed uh like like sin or like sickness you know you can heal the body with sickness but you can't cure old age which is inevitable i didn't get a clear answer from from reading vico but it's clear that uh, the decline the collapse of the empire and uh the decline of the arts that go along with this uh, go together with moral decline. And moral decline begins with uh, religious decline. So you, you could see this uh, in clearly in England. It's much clearer in England, I think, with uh, the difference between Leslie Stephen, uh, the Victorian writer, and Virginia Woolf, his daughter, uh, who said... Uh, basically became the, the leading lady of Bloomsbury and said, basically, human nature changed in 1910. Uh, that was the beginning of the higher sodomy. That's what they called it. And that was the beginning of the decline. So it, this is the perspective that I, that I have. It's decline. Now, I would probably, I'd have to say, if being true to Vico, that the decline of the American empire is going to lead to the birth of something else. Just as the decline of the Roman empire led to the rise of the Holy Roman empire, which was a Christian, uh, Christian uh, uh, state that led to all of the great achievement in art that we're talking about. It, it was all the result of Christianity and the per basis of Christianity. Now, how that's going to happen, I don't know. Because I'm in the same position that St. Jerome was in when my barbarian ancestors started crossing the, the Danube. It looks like the end of everything. It looks like the end of the world. It may be the end of the world. Who knows? It, it may very well be the end of the world. But uh, I, don't, I don't know what's going to follow. All I know is the, the, the trajectory. All I know is the decline. All I know is all I can extract from this are the principles. And I think that's the owl of Minerva. That's wisdom. When you can extract the principles from all of this uh, inchoate experience all around you. Anyway, that's the way I see it. What do you think, Rachel? Uh, there's a lot. Okay, so which way, where are we going? Can I pull it back brut brutally to the thing that I looked at in Dangers of Beauty and would like to build on? And I think maybe touches on here that in, in the end of the chapter on England, you're talking about, among other things, so Coleridge is the last of the the English poets you say who is able to combine the metaphysics and the aesthetics. And after he dies, there's um, the, the sort of loss of that focus. Uh, but you also bring in Newman and his frustration with, he's a Tractarian, so they're trying to write about, you know, bringing the liturgy, the beauty of the liturgy back in. But then he realizes that it's not going to, you can't do that just within the Anglo context. You can't do it without the sacraments, which I think ties into what you're thinking about with Hawthorne and his, his not, being able, very, not being able to convert. But, 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 the, but there was, so there's, there's the, the problem of the metaphysics, the problem of the liturgy, and then Matthew Arnold coming in and, and giving us this, I, this is where I think the culture downstream from politics, pol politics downstream from culture thing comes from, because you have Arnold at rugby both trying to make Greek the center of everybody's school training and athletics, and you get this muscular Christianity. These are all catchphrases that you realize, I realize feed into the present problem we're having with the way people tend to talk about culture as 
the if the culture can save us, right? Which I think Otavio, you agree with me that no religion <laughs> needs to be behind the culture because otherwise you don't have an expression of anything. You just have culture for culture's sake, right? I, I feel like a lot of the I, present day conversation goes, art will save us. And Mike, in, in your in your chapter, you're showing why Newman didn't think that, why it, it fails for for the, the Arnoldian sort of premise. And that's how he's like, there's a, there's the why we end up in 1910 with the higher sodomy. There's already been a cascade of failures before that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Art will lead you to the church, uh, but something else is going to have to take you across the threshold. Right. Newman and uh, Hawthorne are very similar, except they're the exact opposite. So, so Newman understands this, that this is art is a prelude to the higher logos, which is you can only know by faith. And so he takes the plunge and he becomes a Catholic because you can't do it the other way. The uh, Hawthorne takes a step toward the confessional and then suddenly an Italian priest steps out and he says, I can't confess to an Italian. It's, it's, it's a Dago in a dress. He didn't say that. <laughs> Tom, Tom Watson said that. I, wanna, I don't want to take credit for Tom Watson. It was, uh, uh, so I'm saying, I, I've said the same thing uh, to, the, to the Iranians. Okay, they have a huge crisis, demographic crisis, religious crisis, every kind of crisis you can imagine. And I said the paradigm uh, here is the Magi. They were three Persians, and they studied the Logos of the sky. Okay, they understood there was a Logos, and when the star appeared, they had the courage to follow the star. Okay, it's not, it's prudence. You can act on the truth. You follow that star and then that star leads you to the Logos incarnate. And at that point, you have to make a decision whether you're going to accept the Logos incarnate uh, on faith on the higher Logos. And I'm saying what you're talking about in England is uh, a failure. Muscular Christianity is a failure. Another failure and closer to you is the University of Chicago in the 1930s, where basically uh, Mortimer Adler and Robert Hutchins uh, realized pragmatism is ridiculous. Americans don't have a philosophy. We need something that has metaphysical depth. So they bring over Jacques Maritain mm -hmm. and French, French Thomism. And there's a huge battle. John Dewey comes back. We got to bring the big guns. He's at Columbia now. He comes back. He joins up with Louis Worth, and they battle, uh, uh, beat uh, down any type of attempt to uh, get serious about metaphysics. And as a result, the University of Chicago becomes famous for sociology and mm -hmm. social engineering, and that, that's it. That, I think that's that's as close as I, I can come. So it kind of combines what I was saying about Vico. In other words, there is a chance to move forward. And beauty can bring you to that to that moment. But th that moment is not sufficient in and of itself. You have to be able to take the step and go to where beauty is pointing, to the transcendental realm where it's pointing, and, and make your commitment to the Logos incarnate. So this is... I. I've been reading in parallel in this period for, for some other things. And what you don't mention in the book is, I mean, among other things, the, the pre-Raphaelite efforts. Um, but I, I was reading about them in a book on the Victorian image of Jesus, sort of um, particularly the Protestant image. And 
it, I mean, George Eliot participates in that because she translates Strauss's Life of Jesus Critically Examined. And then you, you allude to this in, in the book that the German higher criticism suddenly, you know, throws into everybody into, into fits because Strauss, among other things, is trying to say, well, there's no historical reality behind the Gospels. They conflict too much. You can't get history out of them. It's all mythology, which is true, but not true in, in certain ways. But it means the English fall back on their um, habitual empiricism to try to save what they think about Christ, right? You say the incarnate logos. And one of the things that happens in, in the same period that we're talking about is um, painters like Henry Holman Hunt um, try to do incredibly, quote, realistic, historically accurate sacred images. And, um, you know, he's he, he it, probably everybody's seen them because they become like standard images. But there's one where he has the light of the world where Jesus is in a, a white gown knocking at the door of the heart and trying to get in. There's huge debates over these images, you know, from all sides. Because like, is it is it too Catholic? Is it too... Um, you know, Jesus in a white 90. So everybody, you know, it's like, the, it's, it's too simpering. It's blah, blah, blah. That there, there is, there is a parallel effort to figure out how to represent the incarnate logos in the midst of the muscular Christianity and so forth. And it, it's interesting that that failed too, right? That they, the British failed to like get, and it's like why it fails is interesting because they get so caught up in doing the historical accuracy my sense is well then they also they lose the divinity but they don't know how to grapple those together as well no, it's englishmen trying to be germans again right now, octavio we, we had the first discussion we had was about my ignorance of the history of south america basically and and how th this development just just didn't didn't wasn't included uh, and you're right. It was not part of my consciousness. And you're coming and uh, meeting you and then going to South America and trying to understand what is going on there uh, allowed me to understand that it's a completely different uh, development. It's the other side. Of, it's the other side of the moon. <laughs> About uh, the, your point early on, whether there is, can be a rebound of uh, uh, this degradation we see, this decadence uh, with beauty. Well, I, I don't know what big level but at personal level definitely and i guess this uh, gives me the, the opportunity to ask you go back to wagner uh, you, you explain very well in the danger of beauty how wagner's uh, uh, tristan and his sold work the opera tristan and his sold is is atonal and that ugliness that dissonance seems to be related to Wagner's peccadillos in his personal life, at least at that stage of his life. Right. But a bit uh, left untouched is what happened before that and what happened after that. Because before Tristan and his soul, Wagner wrote Tannhauser, Lohengrin, uh, and The Ring, right? They got their Dumbledore. And those are beautiful, uh, tonal, classic. Music, so things something happened in his life, and 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 he decided to go for for atonality, but he didn't finish there, right? After Tristan and Soul, he wrote Parsifal, and Parsifal is is going back to 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 which is leaving behind the the, the the atonal the dissonance of Tristan and Soul. 
I think I picked this from you. So, so in, in another in another context, that even Nietzsche was uh, very disappointed with uh, with Wagner for doing this. So Wagner came back from 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 his from his he, he was redeemed to speak by beauty. Do, do, do you see that as well? As, as correct that assessment. I Wagner think, didn't finish with Tristan and Isolde. No, Wagner finished right. with Parsifal. He was redeemed by beauty. You're right. You're right. And it caused a break with Nietzsche. Uh, the the uh, Parsifal is the most reverent Eucharistic music I've I've ever heard. I mean, it's devotional music of the sort that allows you to enter into some type of adoration of of the of the Eucharist. And the fact that he could write this after writing Tristan is is amazing. It's a tribute to him as the artist. And in many ways, as I said, the artist can uh, portray what the philosopher cannot explain. And I, I think he could do it. He could portray what the biographer couldn't explain uh, with Wagner as well. It, but the problem is that once he unleashed uh, Tristan, it took on a life of its own. This type of this type of uh, attempt to undo the great achievement of Bach of uh, uniting the chromatic and the diatonic scales uh, to create a, 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 a vehicle for mimesis that had been unprecedented. And the man who really understood this and put it all together was Beethoven. The great breakthrough uh, there uh, in, my, in musical mimesis that you would find in something like the Sixth Symphony. Never before had anyone done anything like that. And it was all traceable back to, back to Bach's uh, well-tempered clavier. But what you so the question is, uh, what can happen with an individual? Uh, we know from the last the story of the good thief, you can be crucified on the point of death, and you can convert uh, and accept Jesus Christ, and you can eventually be saved. Can it, can that happen to a culture? Can that happen to a culture? Can the same? T obviously, if the entire culture were to turn to Logos, there would be a revival and we would come out of this death spiral. I, I think that this is what I'm trying to say to the, the people of Ireland. I'm telling, you know, I get on there with Gemma and I say, look, you're being punished because you turned away from God. Uh, if you turn back to God, maybe God will save Ireland. But it's not clear to me whether that's uh, exactly analogous, whether you can make distinctions, whether you can say, I, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to connect the individual conversion with a cultural conversion. Obviously, if everybody did it, then the culture would convert. It is not inevitable. The decline is not inevitable. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I meant to that. I hope that is uh, correct. It's the million dollar question. <laughs> so, I, so I realize we've gotten to the core of the problem, which is what the Arnold, the, the Matthew Arnold in art and culture and downstream is such point to is chicken and egg of which is first right it's like i i think we will have beautiful art insofar as we turn back to god and make art an expression of our joy at the creation so the mimesis that that we're talking about that we want to imitate the creator in whose image and likeness we are made and so mirror his beauty and i i think you know that the the beautiful art that mike you describe and that we talk about and the music or the poetry is an expression of that joy in seeing God. I my bluntly version of it, but the the hope in the nineteenth century England and the one that people tend to carry with them now about why art right is 
the beautiful art can turn you to God. And that seems to me to be where you're, you're sort of stuck here. It's like, does, can the art bring you to God? If, if it's beautiful, beautiful, you know, music, can it bring people to God? But can't people can't make the beautiful music without looking to God. And then there's the problem that we have as scholars and commentators and, and writers is how much is our not critical writing, but descriptive criticism. Like what I enjoyed a lot about Dangers of Beauty was that it, I now understand why the chromatic scale matters <laughs> and that you can be pointed to the structures of beauty and therefore appreciate them more. So it's this, this, the, the, the looking to God to make the beauty, beauty as drawing us to God. And then how our, our, our pointing people through our own discussion helps them see why it's beautiful. And I'm kind of not sure which one comes first in our hope. Why do you think Ottavio? <laughs> I, I tend to agree with that. Yes. Yeah. It, with which? A point to hope. Beauty can save. Uh, can, save can beauty save us or do we respond no, to no, God beauty, with beauty? beauty I mean, in, in my life, it was uh, at the depths of my apostasy. I listened to uh, Handel's Messiah and I was given a glimpse of the transcendent there uh, that had been missing from my life for years at that point. And it drove me out of my chair to the door of the church, but it didn't get me inside. Hmm. That, had, that took something else. So I, I think that's what you can expect from beauty. It can drive you to the church door. But something else has to get you across the threshold. You have to have some type of rec recognition. So in other words, I'm saying beauty can't save you. Now, I'm thinking when, uh, back to Bloomsbury. Uh, I'm, I keep remembering E.M. Um, e. Forster's novel, Maurice, uh, and this uh, the, the homosexual novel that he wrote that had been suppressed and only came out after he was dead. And there's a long disquisition there about beauty and this kind of homosexual attraction to beauty. Uh, uh, as the only, I, 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 I'm puzzling at it. Cause, so can you have a kind of uh, group of homosexuals who can do something beautiful? That would be Bloomsbury. Mm -hmm. That was Lytton Strachey. That was uh, uh, all of these people, certainly Lytton Strachey and uh, E.M. Forster. Uh, were they able to produce something? Beauty is the only thing that could approach, uh, could touch them. But beauty is not going to save you. Beauty is something that aids. It's it's your entry into the transcend, transcendent aspect of Logos. But they, also, they also try to boycott the beauty that they didn't like, correct? So you describe how they... Uh, they sabotage uh, Kipling's uh, work, not because Kipling's poetry was bad, in, in fact, it was beautiful, but because they didn't like Kipling's politics or there, there, philosophy. There, there was an, a, a, a rebellion against the order of poetry, uh, and Kipling certainly could do orderly poetry. The lines all scanned and they rhymed, and it was, the, I think, a delight to, to read his poetry. So there was a rebellion against the form, and I think that's eventually the, the tragedy of 
modernism is that it broke the form. And then once the form is broken, you lose contact with mimesis. And then once there's no mimesis, there's no beauty. And so you end up with nihilism and uh, uh, transgressive uh, art becomes simply transgressive, one more boundary after another. I see that Milo is here. Speaking, well speaking well of transgressives. <laughs> and Brits who masquerade as Germans. Um, I'm sorry to be so late. I had a power cut, so I'm stuck in an upstairs room. There's an enormous lake on the kitchen floor that I don't know how to address. So I've scampered up here and I've perched a laptop on, on the most enormous books I could find, which are of course yours. Um, uh, so I, I, it may collapse at any moment. I'm sorry to be late, uh, but I am here. <laughs> so I don't know how much of this discussion you've... Uh... You've, you've, I heard a little. Um, and I, we're, and I, we're, and I, we're talking about England and the relationship to beauty to England. Beauty is the only thing, the only transcendental that I think that the English recognize and they recognize it primarily through their poetry. I mentioned I think you're absolutely right about that, because the I, tru truth and goodness components of the transcendentals, they don't hit on the English soul like beauty does. No, I think that philosophy was wrecked by William of Ockham. I don't think they ever uh, <laughs> recovered from that. Uh, you, they, they're always making category mistakes, but they do have this relationship to beauty. I mentioned Queen Elizabeth having her portrait done by Pietro Anagoni, saved Anagoni, right. but also created one of the great portraits of the, of the 20th century. And because everybody in Britain has that attachment to and the refined antenna for beauty, you get that very um, subtle pastoral aesthetic of the English countryside, which has a hundred thousand different permutations depending on uh, region and season that British people just seem to intuitively understand. They get it like epigenetically or something, you know, um, this even, you know, the French countryside, you know, there's, there's nothing else quite like that in Europe, an attachment of the people to the place. No, right? uh, I, I understood that. I went to the Lake District. Mm -hmm. uh, you're, you're not going to have uh, romantic poetry in New Mexico. D.H. Lawrence. <laughs> no, 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 no. I but, take umbrage to that. But you, see, but you see, in England, you've either got the lush, verdant south in the summer or you've got um, Wuthering Heights up north. Right. So you have all of the elements of romance uh, in there. You've got the 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 creation, you just you everything, everything you need there for a, a Blake or or a Wagner opera, uh, and of course uh, Tristan that you were talking, excuse me, that you were talking about is just over the sea in, in Ireland, very close. Um, again, is it the attachment of the people to the place? Uh, there's nothing really quite like that anywhere else in Europe. I think you're definitely right about about the beauty thing, and you can even see it. In, it's in the English restraint that holds them back from Versailles, right? that holds them back from Rococo, right? The thing, the thing that just kind of keeps the British from going into the sort of grotesque and over the top, the, the, the manner in which that those two characteristics combine, that the, let's not do too much, you know, as you Americans would say, like doing the most, right? Uh, let's not go all the way there. Um, you know, the, the house proportions and everything, very classical, uh, very, very modest now, in some now, ways, wait. even if it's massive. Now, wait a minute, London, London is uh, Italian. Though isn't it's it, Italianate, isn't, isn't it? But isn't it Palladio that uh, Christopher Wren used as a model? It's Italianate, but compared to anything in Italy, it's frightfully frumpy. Uh, you know, and, and I think it's a product of that finding the ineffable and um inexplicable in the mundane and the everyday, right? So 
British people can really look at a, at a column and, and see something uh, extraordinary in it. But it doesn't have to be a froofy column. It doesn't need to be some you know, vastly elaborate Corinthian um, uh, explosion. It can just be a column. And that simplicity and restraint um, combined with a sort of eye for beauty is definitely, definitely a, a key part of the British national, national character, for sure. Yes. Or is it uh, the Reformation? Did that have a stultifying effect? Did that restrict emotion? In other words, the maybe that's the restraint. I mean, you know, that Eamon yeah. Duffy, the stripping the altars, right? Maybe Brits retrained themselves to be Spartan. Maybe yeah. they're, they're, yeah. they're, well, I've said before they're afraid of emotion, and that comes out in their music. No, it, we're not afraid of emotion. We just express it differently. There's a, there's a subtlety to it. Again, it's the restraint. We don't want to talk about things forever like Americans do. Um, what we'll do instead is, is just wait for the right moment to give a look that says, thank you for doing that, and I really appreciate it, and let's not make a fuss of it. In, in many ways, those are much more potent emotional uh, moments of emotional expression. It's no, not. It's I, not repression. It's not like the French. I mean, the French will will build, uh, you know, store it up, store it up, store it up, and then go rape kids. You know, um, it's it's not it's not a sort of a explosion of disordered, oppressed um, horror. You know, you know, sort of sexual decadence like the French. Um, it's it's more of a kind of critical distance from things that comes with the, having the eye. You know. Okay, I want I, I the. We were talking about Matthew Arnold and muscular Christianity, and there's the morality, mm -hmm. right? And so I'm I'm mm -hmm. curious, Mike, why you say England doesn't have goodness? Because <laughs> take take exception to, but it's a lot. Just let me finish the question. Mm -hmm. That that um, in in English culture, we have this you know identification of religion with morality, right? They stripped off so that there's no transcendental metaphysical claims in it. It's how to be good socially, which, you know, I, I say is more characteristic of the late 19th century than the earlier periods. But mm -hmm. this, I don't, I don't understand why we won't say they, they care about goodness because that seems to be one of the social criteria right. that is I, very important. I cover method. I cover the rise of Methodism. Yeah. And, and the effect that that had, a moral reform, the effect that that had on uh, British life, I think it found expression in reading and poetry. It did not find an expression uh, uh, elsewhere. So you're right. There was that kind of moral reform. I think the key to understanding that is, is charm, isn't it? Is the British charm. You know, the, the, wherever else we go in the world, we feel like people are, are interacting in a very... Uh, blunt kind of basic way, like going from Lego back to Duplo. Um, wherever we go in the world, even if we're speaking other languages, we always feel people are, are, are communicate, communicating with, with one another in these kind of clunky blocks. Because there is, there's a whole dance that happens when you say in just the right way, at just the right time, uh, just the right thing, that it's a whole kind of communication of a whole, it's, it, it, there's, a, there's a whole moral system we're communicating. And when, we're, and when we're charming, it means that we're paying attention to you because we've spotted something that will delight That's you. Right. And we want That's to bring right. make you happy. We want to bring joy, right? Um, right. And, and sometimes people, people in America, I often think because it's so commercialized here and, and, and a, a different religion is in charge of things here. Um, I think charm is, is viewed as a little sinister because anytime someone's being charming, they must be trying to deceive you or sell you something. But in Britain, it's a way of expressing a selflessness and attentiveness and a, willing, a willingness, a desire to spread a happiness to the other person. It means I've paid close attention to you because 
you're in front of me, you exist, I'm here, I'm present. I've seen you, I've done a million calculations, and I've come up with something that might make you smile. That's sort of an incredibly beautiful thing to do to a stranger, you know? Uh, right. it's, why people, it's why people are so bewitched by it when they meet Brits. Um, right. there's, a, there's an issue here. Yeah, there is something in there as well. At a certain point, beauty uh, becomes conscious of itself. Uh, beauty becomes philosophical, and that's known as aesthetics. And that's the key to etiquette, isn't it? Making it look effortless. The butler, you know, you don't, the butler doesn't really walk at all. He glides. That's the whole point. The whole British system of manners is about walking that, that line, isn't it? Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. but, but, let's, but again, we're going to consciousness here. And the two people that come to my mind are Roger Scruton, who was very influenced by beauty, who wrote on aesthetics, and uh, then uh, Terry Eagleton, who is his uh, antithesis, a, a Marxist, who also wrote about aesthetics, but from a, a completely Marxist uh, perspective. And I think both of them, I think both of them failed. Both of them failed in their way because in order to do aesthetics, you have to be philosophical. And I'm saying in order to process, in other words, this has to become conscious of itself if you want to move forward. And it didn't become conscious uh, at this point. And so we're still at a, at, a, at a lower level because neither Eagleton nor Scruton were able to say what needed to be said about, about beauty and its relationship to the transcendentals. I think Scruton falls silent in, you know, it's almost like he's, uh, you know, in front of the beatific vision every time he goes to the opera house and he kind of is so struck dumb by it. He can communicate to you his dumbness, but he can't really tell you what just happened to him. Um, I, well, I, but I, he, he specifically, I read your review in, in yeah. the magazine of, of, um, of, of the book, and I've, I, I haven't read that, but I've, I've read other things of his, and I feel he does that kind of cheap English trick of, of you know, ending impressionistically and letting you fill in the rest. <laughs> Maybe that's something like what you're talking about. I will about. prevent you from doing that right now. No, the, the <laughs> Which I kind of just did. <laughs> Scruton, Scruton, the thing is, Scruton, I, I listened to some of his lectures, so the re review I, reminded me of those too, that he he gets to the point, he, he goes to this point of saying art will save you. And, mm -hmm. I, and, and I agree with you, Mike, it doesn't. I don't think you get to beauty and are saved. And Scruton's the proof of the fact that it's not, it's not sufficient, right? He, he sort of defaults into, well, you know, we'll be in the presence of beauty and that will, and, and, and there's like, it, it, that it like bleeds away. Do you think he's asking what the weather's like? Is it a kind sort of, of yeah. it's a sort of platitude. He's, him, so he's, like yeah. he's like the English version of Hawthorne. So we're exactly. talking, exactly. Right. We're yeah. talking about ethnocentrism here. Yeah. You, ethnocentrism is great. I love eth ethnic identity, but it's not universal. It's not transcendent. And you have to be able to go beyond that. And I don't think uh, uh, Roger Scruton ever could get beyond his aspiration to be accepted by the uh, ruling class. That's, exa that's exactly it. So when he tries to say something real and profound, he has to fall back on the, the manners of the upper classes. And instead right. of telling us how this touched his soul, and he, they asks don't us, like it. he asks us what the weather's like. They don't like it when you say when you try to do something profound. I have a source who it's very rude for us. Who knew these very people. Rude. Why? Why is it rude to be profound? That's the that's the key. Because it's an imposition. Because it's an imposition. Because if you if you express emotions that strong, the implication is that they are um, taking hold of you and you are not in command of them. And since that's the case, you it's sort of a bit of a cry for help, really. When you express a strong emotion, like there's no restraint on it. You're placing a burden on everyone else to comfort you, to attend to you, to notice you. It's a, it's a, you, it's it's an imposition. Whereas, you know, keep your keep your 
you know, nonsense to yourself and then express that, you know, that the most English expression of emotion is the solitary silent tear wandering down the cheek with not a, not a whimper. Uh, that's, that's it. That's it. But that's, but think about how heartbreaking that can be versus the bawling and shuddering and shouting uh, of, of, you know, more expressive colonial cultures. Um, no, it's, it's, you've, you know, you have to, you have to find it in the subtleties of the, of the language, of the visual bodily language of the, you know, whatever, but, um, no, it, it's an imposition. It's rude. It's rude because you're wandering in and you're throwing something at somebody else and you're going, now what? That's how we feel about, you know, like walking into a room crying. It's like you yeah, well, in. medieval medieval English were way more, you know, willing to to ball. Well, actually, Marjorie Kim gets thrown out of everything because she keeps bawling in church, and they did feel it as an imposition. But they were also smiling, laughing, and dancing all the time, which Brits don't do anymore either. See, definitely Reformation then. Uh, the the people I know who knew the upper class would always refer to Scruton as the nutty professor. Yeah, that, that's that's classic. Scruton, on the other hand, was <laughs> trying to get accepted by people who held him in contempt, and so yes. he was he he would write about fox hunting, uh, the the uh, the in, uh, what is it called the in, in, inexpressible the ear in, or something in chase of chasing the inedible. But it's a um, yeah, but it's a complete misjudgment because the British Empire, you would address him as sir. And the last thing I saw of him, he's in his wheelchair, he's dying. Uh, he's lost all of his uh, hair, no, no more blonde hair. He's actually a redhead, but uh, but he's wearing that OBE medal as he's. Oh no! He's, he's in a wheelchair. It's an incredible faux pas. He's a, he's in a wheelchair, yeah. basically in his pajamas, but wearing Looking like an old veteran abandoned at the Red Cross. No, know? I think he's going. To, he's waiting to go before God and tell him that uh, he see that medal there. Yeah, uh, this, I think it's so okay. Good. I've just figured it all out. Okay, it is. We're gonna have to bring this to a conclusion here because the hour is up. Uh, but figure, no, tell us what you figured out. Okay, well, it's the first Elizabeth and it's the poem that we're writing now. It's so th what happens with Elizabeth, and this is the fairy queen, Edmund Spencer, right? He has to write her as Gloriana, that the, everything ends up focused on the, the queen as the source of all. I mean, approbation and beauty, and it's, it's like in, instead of Our Lady, <laughs> who we should be focusing on as the one who shows us shows us her son, we focus on the monarch. And Milo, what you're describing, I mean, the upper classes are all focused on the the, the court in various I ways. I now understand why you hate English monarchs because they're all the great ones, all the famous ones are women, and they're all surrogate blessed blessed virgins for you, aren't they? They're in the this wrong place. Hate, this is why you yes. hate all the. This is why you hate all the English queens. I get they, it. They, 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 they displaced Our Lady of Walsingham. For goodness' sake. Mm, mm. No, I, I, okay. I've been wondering about that because we've been talking about that. Uh, but it means it means their poor, you know, um, is he Professor Scruton? Poor Roger Scruton is sitting there with a medal. Which is, a, queen. which is a faux pas. Where well, you would never do that, right? Uh, whether you're about to meet the Almighty or not, it's funny because. Uh, so, so there's a, a very old newspaper called the Catholic Herald, which um, you probably heard of if you haven't seen it physically. Uh, and the guy that it's just been sold again, but the guy that bought it and wrecked it a few years ago was trying a different maneuver to work his way up into the um, upper classes. Scruton tried to do it through um, erudition, not realizing that most of the upper classes are thick as you know what. And 
much more like Princess Margaret. <laughs> you know? um, and, and they're not thinking about the ineffable when they're out with the, with the hounds. They're just having, they're having very uncomplicated fun, even if they're dressed nicely. So that was kind of a, 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 a sort of a comical misjudgment because he's coming out in the middle classes imagining like the smarter I get, the posher I get in some way. Um, and this, the, the guy that owns the Catholic Herald is doing this too. He, uh, he bought, you know, this venerable old ancient newspaper as his passport in. And he got sniffed out too because the English upper classes have these, you know, like the most amazingly complex, perfectly finely tuned antenna for these things. And they've got you before you're even in the zip code. Uh, no, 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 no. There's something off about him. So there's a variety of these strategies that, where, that people try to use to buy their way in. And that, that whole kind of surrogacy and, and substitution of, of the, and uh, now I get why, yeah, now I get why you don't like the monarchs. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, listen, I got it. I have to go to a wake. I have to lead the rosary at a wake. Uh, someone died. I got to go there. I've had, this has been a great discussion. Uh, I, uh, I, I would love to continue it uh, some other time. Please do let uh, me come back because I'm, I'm so sorry I was late. I, that's okay. Better late than never, as we say over here. Anyway, yeah, I, do, I do apologize. <laughs> thank, thanks to everyone for coming on. Thank you. Uh, and we'll see you at another time. God bless. God bless. God bless. Thank you. Mozart wrote beautiful music because he lived in a culture which understood that beauty was a transcendental that could lead you to God. The Greeks thought that music could be beautiful. The Greeks also thought that music could kill you. Plato knew that music could arouse passion and when that passion could get out of control in the Dionysian festivals of his day, passion led to death. Euripides explained why in his play, The Bacchae. When Dionysus, the Asiatic god of intoxication and sexual excess, led Pentheus, king of Thebes, out of the city so that he could watch the women dance naked on the mountainside. He led Pentheus to his death. Nothing has changed. Ten people died at Travis Scott's Astroworld concert in Houston on November 5th, 2021. By now it should be obvious that music can kill you. 21 people died at the Duisburg Love Parade concert on July 24th, 2010. Unfolded. You can see people scrambling up the banks to escape the crush. In what was supposed to be a sequel to the Woodstock Festival celebrating peace and love, Meredith Hunter was stabbed to death on December 6, 1969 by the Hells Angels the Rolling Stones hired as security guards.
when rap artists gun each other down on a regular basis in Atlanta, pundits seek to find the cause in unemployment or COVID or in anything but the mayhem that is inherent in their music. Beauty is based on mimesis, which is Aristotle's word for imitation. Art is imitation of nature. Art began in caves. Decorated caves were the first temples. Temples were geometric forms like the circle, the rectangle, and the triangle imposed on stone. Sculpture was the form of the human body imposed on stone. Beginning with Giotto, painters in Italy took mimesis to unimaginably realistic portrayals of the human body. We know that music is dangerous, but is beauty dangerous too? How did beauty become dangerous? How did we get from there to here? How do we get from there to here? How do we get from there to here? The Dangers of Beauty is now available at Fidelity Press. Purchase a copy, go to fidelitypress.org.